Amen. Glorious morning already. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're in Mark chapter 15. We're nearing the end. We're nearing the end. Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15 as we get closer to the moment of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in the text. How would you react if I said that The Sound of Music, that movie you all know and love, it's a movie about hills and mountains. Star Wars is a great series of films about a dysfunctional family. The Godfather, have you seen that one? It's about a family business. Harry Potter, great story. It's about a magic wand. Jurassic Park, a case study in theme park management. (laughs) Braveheart is a movie about face paint. If you've seen any of those movies, you would know that what I've just said is silly. All of these things are adventures and missing the point. How will you do on these statements? The Bible is the story of how to live a good life. The gospel is a demonstration of how valuable I am. Jesus was a revolutionary. Christianity is about how to be a better person. wonder if you realize what many don't realize, even Christians, that what I've just said about the Bible and about the Gospel and about Christianity are also adventures in missing the point. You've got your Bible open to Mark chapter 15. The earliest biography of Jesus' life. And we're nearing the end. We're getting close to that moment where He dies on the cross. And the closer we get to that moment, the closer we get to the beating, pulsating center of Christianity. The point of Christianity, if you will. There's a lot of things that you will read about in the Bible. There's a lot of things that you will learn about if you become a Christian or if you are a Christian and many things that you've learned along the way. You'll get uh, directions on how you ought to live. There's all kinds of Uh, Christian ethics that we learn and we pick up by being in church and by reading our Bibles. If you're a husband, you'll learn how to love your wife. If you're a wife, you'll learn how to relate to your husband. If you're a kid, you'll learn how to honor your parents. If you're living life in the workplace, you'll have principles for how to be a good worker. You'll have all kinds of directions, all kinds of ethics, ways to use your words, ways to relate to others. What kind of friends should you have? All kinds of ethics that we teach and we believe that come out of Scripture. And while all those things are highly important to living a faithful and obedient life, they're not the center of it all. It's possible that you get all of those things right and think you're a Christian and not get the center right. I had a friend in college that played basketball with me, and one of the things that the coach did at the beginning of the year, the first couple of years that I was uh, on the team there, is he teamed us up, or he, he paired us up with other 
teammates. Uh, we were like buddies, I guess, and we were supposed to be accountability partners and all that. And, and I remember this one particular player on the basketball team had gotten in with a kind of precarious testimony, not sure what he believed about Jesus, um, but he was really good at basketball. So he made the team, and uh, even though it was a Christian university, they let him in to the team, uh, to the school. And I was paired up with this guy, and we're sitting, we're supposed to meet, and our first meeting, we're talking to one another, and we're asking each other what kind of things we could be praying for. And it was at that point that I had asked for prayer for a family member who was walking away from the Lord, who was denying the truthfulness of the Bible, who was denying the, the, the gospel itself. And I was grieved about it, and I asked this guy who was on my team, I was just getting to know him, to pray. And he asked me, well, he might not believe all those things about Jesus and the death of Christ and all that, but he's doing good things, isn't he? He's a, he's a good good person? But yeah, like I, I love him. He, he's a good person. He He's not like, you know, breaking the law and running his life into the ground. He's, he's, he's actually pretty moral. And then he said to me, my friend, he said, oh, well, well he's a Christian then. Well, no. Because he was having this misunderstanding. This friend of mine that was on my team, he was having a misunderstanding, wasn't he? That there was, in his mind, there was the external moral, ethical code of Christianity, but it was in his mind divorced from the heart of Christianity. And in his mind, he made a mistake, and I wonder if anyone here has made the same mistake, that because someone has a certain set of Christian morals, you automatically think, ah, they're Christians. The closer we're going to get to the cross, the more it's going to become clear to us all here this morning, Christianity is not fundamentally about a moral code you adopt, about a system of ethics you try to live out in your life. It's not about becoming more moral. It's not about becoming a better person. It's about Christ. about what He has done to save sinners. You stick around for the next few weeks and you're not a Christian. I hope you do continue to come back even if you're not a professing believer. In the next few weeks, we're going to be zeroing in on the very bullseye of Christianity. Please come back and consider with me the claims of Christ and the work of Christ and what it means on the cross. It's interesting that all of the things of the, the, the morals that we can teach can exist apart from the life-giving principle of the cross. The cross, church, is central to all that we do. The cross is the beating heart in the middle of it all. In fact, it's so central that if you read Paul's letters, he can sum up the entirety of his message by calling it the message of the cross. The message of the cross. And that word in Paul's mind sums up the whole of what it means to be a Christian. You know what the cross is, what, what was accomplished there. Well, that's where we're heading. I want you to have your Bible open. You're there in Mark chapter 15. And here we are in this, these 15 verses. We're looking at the final hours before the cross. From chapter 11 onward, we've been studying the last week of Jesus' life. You remember that Jesus came into Jerusalem that final week on that Sunday to the, uh, the shouts of approval and praise of the crowds. 
And then it was that Passover week, so all kinds of other Jewish pilgrims were flooding into Jerusalem. And throughout the week, Jesus had these confrontations with these other religious leaders who were trying to discredit Him, and He was able to answer them profoundly and silence His critics. The critics then wanted to destroy Him. They wanted to get rid of Him. And so they were considering how they could do that. And they knew that if they tried to do it in the middle of the day, when all the people were there, that it would cause an uprising, a riot. And so they were thinking about other ways. They thought, well, maybe we'll wait until the Passover feast is over and all the visiting pilgrims go home, and then we can do it without causing an uproar. Ah, but then there was Judas. And Judas gave them an in to be able to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. And so on the Thursday night, before the arrest, they have the final meal. You remember that in chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. Jesus is eating this Passover meal with His disciples, and He transforms it into what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. He presents Himself as the Passover lamb. That His own body will be broken for His people. His blood will be spilled. He will die in the place of sinners. Chapter 14, verses 26 to 31, Jesus predicts the disciples would abandon Him. Specifically that Peter would do it three times, denying Him. Peter objects. Excuse me, Peter thinks, no, no, I'll never do that. And Jesus says, yeah, you will. You'll not do it once, not even twice. You'll do it three times. They go to the garden to pray. Jesus has this night of intense, intense, troubled soul. He's, he's praying to God. He's asking, Lord, if there's any way that you could remove this cup, uh, remove it, but not my will, yours be done. He resolves to go to the cross. It's right then that the guards come because Judas had betrayed him. They come and they arrest him. What we looked at two weeks ago was this kind of mock trial in the middle of the night there at the end of chapter 14 where they're brought to the high priest's private residence. They're put on the sham trial. They accuse Jesus of things He never did. What they're trying to do is move Jesus from being someone they're disappointed with and someone who they consider disruptive. They want to somehow make Him guilty of a capital crime so that by the morning they can present Him to the Roman government and have the Romans kill him. Remember, the Jews were not able to execute the prisoners. That was a Roman responsibility. So the Jews this night, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, are all trying to come up with a capital crime that Jesus has committed so that they can uh, present him and convince the Roman government pilot to say, yes, let's kill the guy. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 64, this kind of midnight gathering the Jewish leaders come up with a decision. What is your decision? The high priest cries out. And it says there that they all condemned him as deserving death. Deserving death. This is where we're at in the story. We come to chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. I want you to follow along with me as I read this section. And then I'll give you the outline of the study. Thank you, Hans. And we will study through the text using that outline. Let's read verses 1 to 15. As soon as it was morning, 
The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. The Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the God, that's the word of God to us this morning. We're going to study it by dividing it into three headings. So you can follow along. Number one, we're going to look at the perfect obedience of Jesus. And then second, we're going to study the startling evil of men. And conclude with the symbolic release of the guilty. Alright, so that's what we're looking at. We're the perfect obedience of Jesus. Let's start there. Uh, before we actually start diving into the text, I want to teach you about a theological concept that's really important for us to understand in these next few weeks. As we're coming to the point of the cross, we have to understand something that's really central to the gospel itself, and it's something that theologians have called the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. To understand the active obedience of Christ, we have to understand humanity's two fundamental problems. See, the Bible's very clear that humanity has a broken relationship with God and that we need to be reconciled to God. And the reason we are not in good relationship with God is that there are two big problems that separate us and keep us separated from God. The first problem is the presence of sin. All of us have sinned. All of us are born in sin. All of us are guilty of Adam's sin, according to Romans chapter 5. We are guilty because we have a sin nature, and we are guilty because we choose sin. We are guilty of sin. That's big problem number one that separates us from God. But there's a second big problem that separates us from God, that even if the first problem were taken care of, we'd still be unable to be reconciled to God. And here's the second problem, is that we lack the righteousness that God requires. The first problem is that we have sinned against God, and therefore we are guilty. The second problem is that we lack the righteousness that God requires for us to be brought into His presence. So even if all the record of sin, or if the sins were 
forgotten. The record of sin, the the lack of perfect righteousness would still stand against us and render us incapable of having a right relationship with God. So what do we need when we stand before God? Two things. We need sins forgiven and we need a perfect righteousness credited to our account. How many of you are going to be able to stand up here and say, I have a perfect righteousness? I think anybody with self-awareness, a working conscience, and a Bible will know that they don't have a perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness that God requires is something that no one can attain on their own. You say, okay, well, how then can God save us? How can we be reconciled to Him? Well, we hear often about how God provides solution for the first problem. The cross, right? It enables us to have our sins forgiven. Washed away. We're made clean. God takes our sins from us, removes them as far as, uh, from us as east is from the west. We are cleansed. But what about the problem that we lack righteousness? Ah, the active obedience of Christ teaches that as you read the Gospel accounts and you observe the life of Christ, every time He resists temptation, every time He says no to sin, Every time he obeys the Father, he is accruing a perfect righteousness that he will share with everyone who trusts him. And that those who recognize their lack of righteousness and their sin and in repentance turn to Jesus, not only have their sins forgiven, They have the righteousness of Christ, the active obedience of Christ credited to their account. And that you are justified before God based on not your own righteousness, not your own obedience, not your own attempts, as Hans prayed this morning, even our best attempts are but filthy rags. We are justified on the grounds that we have been given a righteousness on the outside of us. A foreign righteousness. Theologians sometimes call it an alien righteousness. Credited to our account. And God looks upon us as having the very righteousness of Christ. And so here's here's why that all matters here. So when we're reading about Jesus on His way to the cross, I want you to be thinking, there's my champion accomplishing the act of obedience that I failed to do. And that when He succeeds in all the places I have failed, He is accomplishing a righteousness so that I can have the righteousness required to stand before a holy God. Because there is a true sense in which these moments of temptation for Jesus are just as critical as the cross itself. Because what would have happened if at any moment in the garden... Or in the trial, or in these temptations here, if Jesus just snapped and began sinning, disobeying his father and saying mean, unkind, ungodly things to those who were arresting him, what would have happened? He would not be righteous. And he couldn't give us a righteousness that would reconcile us to God. 
So here we see Jesus accomplishing a perfect righteousness for us. Verse 1. Perfect obedience of Jesus. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. Remember what's going on here. It was in the middle of the night that the first meeting of the Sanhedrin, that's what these three groups of people are, chief priests, scribes, elders, they comprise a group of people who are the religious elite. They're called the Sanhedrin, the council. As soon as the sun begins to rise, and it's morning, it says there, that they're going to try to make this trial look legal. Okay, Remember, what they've done in the middle of the night is not a legal trial. It wasn't legitimate in any sense of the word. And so now the morning is, is here. They're gathering the rest of the Sanhedrin together and they want to make it appear to Pilate that what they've done is completely in bounds and legitimate. So they're holding a consultation. They're making sure that they have the accusation they want. And it says here that they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. You remember, Pilate's got to be the one to say that he can be killed. The Jews don't have that authority. They got to bring it and they got to convince Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. He's a, he's a governor of Judea. He's from, he's operating on behalf of Caesar. He's not a Jew. It's actually interesting that Pilate wouldn't have ordinarily lived in Jerusalem, but for this time during this week, because it was Passover week and because Jews by the thousands were flooding into the city, Pilate would usually come down for the big feast days and just be there to ensure that things were being governed well. He wanted to keep the peace. He was very much a politician. He would do what he needed to do to make sure that there were no uprisings and no riots. And so he would come. He'd be there. That's how all of this could happen so quickly. I don't think that they would be able to do this as they did it so quickly if Pilate wasn't there that week. I mean, they were able to bring Jesus, the perfectly innocent man who had done nothing wrong, and he was celebrated by the crowds. They were able to bring him from there to suddenly being the subject of ridicule and the object of derision, not only from the religious leaders, but the crowds themselves are shouting, crucify him. How does this happen in a matter of hours, in one night? Part of it is because all the stars aligned in a sense, and Pilate happens to be there. They're able to get the the approval of Pilate, as we'll see. Look at those verbs there in verse 1, what they do to Jesus. It says they bound him, tying him up. They're going to drag him along. It says they led him. And then it says they delivered him. There's another place where we see Jesus the supremely powerful Son of God has humbled Himself. He has put Himself under these guards. And He is allowing them to do to Him what they want. Why is He doing this? Ultimately, we know that the answer is that He is being submissive to His Father, isn't it? Remember, Jesus said that it was His food to do the will of the One who sent Him. In John 5.15, 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. What the Father has told me to do, that is what I will do. I'm not going to deviate. The Father has sent me on a mission. The Father has sent me to go to the cross 
And here they are binding me up and leading me away. And they're going to deliver me over the one who can give me the sentence of death. And he does not resist. He doesn't say no. I want you to first notice as we consider the perfect obedience of Christ, his perfect submission. Perfect submission, not merely to the human authorities there that are dragging him along, but the perfect submission to his heavenly father. When he said, not my will, but yours be done. He knew what that meant. That though he had all the power in the universe to say no and to put an end to it, he humbly submitted himself to what the Father had for him. I can't help but read and reflect on these passages and my mind goes to 1 Peter 2. I know I've shared this, I think, a few weeks ago, this same text, but, but this is what's happening. Peter, who would have been observing and hearing about these things in 1 Peter 2, years later when he writes the epistle, he wrote, When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of his suffering, Jesus is able to look past the immediate events to his father. And say, Father, I'm going to follow your will. I'm going to submit to you. His submission was perfect. And church, this is an example for us to follow as well, to perfectly submit ourselves to the Father. And it is only in that submission that we find ourselves able to face the trials that will come, the persecutions that will come, the accusations that will come. As we say, Father, I'm going to submit my entire life to you. Aren't you glad also he didn't buckle here? He is succeeding in all the ways we failed. Submission is perfect, but not only is submission, submission is perfect. Look at the way that he answered, the high, or answered Pilate. His answer was perfect. We see there in verse 2 that Pilate gets to see Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that uh, the high priest had kind of come up, or not the high priest, the Sanhedrin had kind of come up with a few different charges that they brought to Pilate. Mark just includes the most important one. Luke says that there were three things that they were accusing Jesus of. One, you're misleading our nation. Two, you're forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Remember that whole dialogue about should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were twisting that and saying that Jesus told them that they shouldn't give tribute to Caesar. And third, they accused Jesus that he was saying that he is the Christ and he's a king. Now, Pilate doesn't care about the first two. That's why in Mark, this is the third one, the only one that really mattered to Pilate is this. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you saying that you're the Jewish Messiah? Are you saying that you're the king of the Jews? Because if that's true, then we can have a problem here with insurrection. Because there's one Caesar, and it's not you, Jesus. But if you're saying that you're the Christ, if you're saying that you're the Messiah, then you are going to be guilty of something that is very serious. See, the Romans didn't care if the Jews blasphemed. You know, the Jews would have said that's a capital crime. The Romans didn't care. Okay, you could blaspheme all you want. Okay, all these things that you're saying about Jesus teaching this, Jesus teaching that, that's not meriting a capital crime. That's not, a, that's not execution worthy. But you say you're a king when Caesar's king? That's a problem. So he, Pilate cuts to the chase. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the question. That's what he's concerned about. Are you claiming to have authority that you are putting yourself outside from under Caesar's authority? Are you rivaling the emperor here? Are you trying to create an uprising? Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus responds. Look at what he says. You have said so. Interesting, right? Jesus is so wise. And just the, even the little ways when she answers questions. Because what he's doing here, this is a way of agreeing with Pilate. It is an affirmative. You've said so. Like, yeah. But it's also a way of cluing Pilate in that his assumption of what that means might not be entirely correct. Yeah, you've said so, but what you think you mean when you say king is not quite what I mean when I say king. You've said so. He is affirming the truth while also providing a way for Pilate to think a little bit differently about who Jesus is claiming to be. He has a perfect answer. But not only a perfect answer, he has a perfect attitude. Look at what's happening next in verse 3. Pilate asks him, you've said so. Verse 3 says, and the chief priests, so Pilate gives the question, but then the chief priests can't hold themselves back from beginning to shower Jesus with all kinds of false accusations about what he's done. He accused him of many things. So even the three things that Luke includes, there's probably many more accusations that start getting thrown out here. He said this about the temple. He said this about taxes. He said this about that. All kinds of accusations begin throwing out to the point where verse 4, Pilate gets a little bit exasperated. What answer do you have to make? Jesus, are you going to respond to any of this? All kinds of accusations are being thrown at you. Your reputation is being dragged through the mud. Well, what are you going to say? Defend yourself. Come on. Is it true? All these things they're claiming about you? See how many charges they bring against you. It's like one charge after another. Look at what they're saying. Have you no answer for what they claim? Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. The perfect calm. His silence in that moment spoke louder than any sermon you've ever heard. He completely entrusts himself to the Father and feels no need to defend himself. What a model. Perfect trust in the Father. Perfect repose. Poise. Not the slightest stain of sin or annoyance in his behavior. This is almost impossible for us to imagine. How many of you act this way when you're accused? Anybody? How many of you like this or like this at all? I can almost, it's hard to even fathom this kind of response happening to us fallen people. When our names are being dragged through the mud and people are giving us or charges against us that, of things we did not do, how does that make you feel? Even in marriages, when there's misunderstandings and there's clashing and conflict and tension, how do you feel when you're misunderstood? I mean, at the very least, we get a little bugged. We get grumpy. We get annoyed. Come on, you know better than that. Why do you assume the worst? Those kinds of things we say. And we got this internal spirit of, uh, I deserve to be treated better than this. Jesus, silence. Complete silence so that Pilate is amazed. He's stunned. I think Pilate is, this is so foreign to human nature that Pilate just doesn't have a category for what's happening here. You have nothing to say? I mean, isn't human nature to rise up in self-defense and 
say all the reasons they're wrong and say all the reasons you're right. Jesus doesn't feel any need to defend himself. It's as if he said, all the things I've done attest to the truth of what I've claimed, all my teachings I stand by. I don't need to defend myself, my works, my life, my teaching. They'll all defend me. My Father will defend my honor. I'm going to just trust him and I'm going to remain silent. His attitude is perfect. He is so secure in his heavenly Father, he does not sense any inclination to reply whatsoever. And it's stunning. Aren't you thankful for this? Really, just stand back and be in awe of Jesus here. None of us could do this. And all of us have failed in so many ways where Jesus succeeds here. How many of us have failed to submit to the Father's will? How, much have had, how, much, how many of us have had terrible attitudes in the midst of being misunderstood or marginalized or, 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 or accused? And we just have reason after reason after reason for God to be done with us for all the reasons we failed. And Jesus marches through this most horrendous time with total, perfect obedience. He would have said, all right, I'm done with this. I've had it up to here with you guys. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. You're not going to bind me up and lead me anywhere. I'm done. We would all be lost. We would all be lost because we would not have any access to a perfect righteousness that would reconcile us to God. He couldn't credit us perfect righteousness if He didn't live it Himself. Here is Jesus accruing your righteousness so that you can stand before a holy God. And if He buckles it all for a split second, if He sins in His mind, You and I are lost. But He prevails. He prevails. If you're not a Christian, I want to just make sure you know that one day you will meet the God who made you. One of the requirements He will have for you is a perfect record. And nothing you can do all the rest of your life and attain the righteousness that He will require of you. The Gospel is that Jesus lived the righteous life that you could never live. And that by faith, when you cling to Him and trust nothing else but Christ alone, perfect, active obedience is credited your account, and you are justified on the basis of His perfections, not yours. And so that your acceptance before God does not rise with your good behavior and fall with your poor behavior, it doesn't rise or fall at all. Your acceptance is permanent and eternal and unchanging because Christ is perfect and eternal and unchanging. And His perfect sinless obedience here counts as your own. Beautiful gospel we have. Believe this. If you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus and receive the free gift of righteousness. So that's the perfect obedience of Jesus. I want to now look at the startling evil of men. It really is startling to look at what happens in verses 6 to 15 
Again, the tide turns so quickly that these people begin to cry out the bloodthirsty cry to crucify Him. It's like the camera changes its focus for a moment here. You know, in verses 1 to 5, we're kind of looking at Jesus. The camera's right on Him and how He is responding to Pilate and the accusers of the Sanhedrin. And then the camera begins to pan over and we begin to see what's happening with the crowd and the mob and Pilate and the chief priests and what they're doing and how Jesus almost becomes a background figure in this section. We see evil on full display. Look at verse 6. Now the feast, remember this is during the Passover and there's a feast that takes place along with the Passover. It says, He used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. This is something that the Roman governors would often do as a way to appease the Jews who were under their rule. Remember, the Jews did not like being under Roman oppression. But one of the ways that the Jews or the, the Romans kept the Jews kind of happy and placated was once a year around this time during the feast, we'll release one of your prisoners. So it doesn't seem like we're such a heavy-handed oppressor, oppressor to you. We're going to let someone go. We're going to be merciful. And that would have built some rapport between the Roman government and the Jews. And so that's what is expected. That's what uh, Mark here is describing. There's a prisoner that they could be released if they asked for it. And then it says in verse 7, there was one particular rebel in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. At this point in the first century, there are actually several attempts of the Jews to overthrow Rome's rule. These insurrectionists were sometimes called zealots. Uh, They believed it was their God-given right and authority to have the land and that they shouldn't have anyone over them. And so they would often fight, even willing to lay down their own lives to uh, set the Jews free. They were even willing, apparently, to murder in the righteous cause of eliminating Roman oppression. Barabbas was one of these zealots. He had committed murder. He had taken the life of another human being. He was an actual insurrectionist. And here, it's just mentioned that there he, he's one of the, the rebels who are in prison. He's a known person named Barabbas. Verse 8, the crowd comes up to Pilate. It says, it began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. In other words, hey, you usually set someone free. Uh, can you do that now? You see, the the morning had dawned, the crowds had begun to gather around. I mean, if you're in the first century, you don't have an iPhone, there's no YouTube, you're not like going to uh, uh, the movie theaters. If you want some entertainment, you you head over to the marketplace, you look to see what, you know, Pilate's doing this morning. Oh, there's some criminals, he's rendering judgments. That's the kind of stuff you want to see. The sun starts to rise, the crowds begin to gather. This was where the Original trial was supposed to be, this is how it operated in the public square, not in the middle of the night in the private residence as it had the night before. So the crowds are all beginning to gather around. And some of these crowds, people in the crowd are going up and they're beginning to ask Pilate, hey, you're going to set someone free like you ordinarily do. And verse 9 says that Pilate was expecting them to ask to set Jesus free. I mean, Pilate had been there. He'd seen the crowds. He'd seen how much they loved to celebrate his uh, arrival in Jerusalem that Sunday. And it says that he answered them saying, do you want for me to release for you the king of the Jews? I mean, that was his expectation. This man, he's, he's been so popular. He's done 
so much good. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's been teaching in the temple. Certainly, this is what you're going to ask me for, right? You want me to let him go. And judging by the other Gospels, Pilate was ready to let him go. Pilate, even we'll see here in a moment, didn't see anything wrong with Jesus. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, Pilate's, it's described that Pilate's wife actually came to Pilate and said, hey, listen, have nothing to do with this guy, Jesus. I had a bad dream about him, and you shouldn't do anything with him. Just, just ignore him and let him go. So Pilate is a little maybe concerned about that and doesn't see anything really deserving of capital punishment. And so he's saying, all right, I'll, I'll let this king of the Jews go. He's ready to let him. He calls him king of the Jews. I think he's being sarcastic there. He doesn't actually believe he's the king of the Jews. He's just using what they've called him. I'll let this. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And verse 10 says, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. So he was realizing the chief priest didn't really have a great uh, real reason to give him over to crucifixion. It was purely out of envy. So let's, the chief priests, you know, they were envious. They delivered him up. But you, the crowd, you want to see him set free. So let's set him free. But something happens between verse 10 and verse 14 that changes everything dramatically. I find it fascinating. By, by the time you get to verse 14, Pilate is asking the crowd what they should do, verse 13 and 14, and they begin crying out that they want Him crucified. What? What? What happened? Where did that change of mind come from? What in the world took place during this time that caused these crowds to, to, to want to murder Jesus? I wanted to point out some of the things you're going to see there in the text as we work through it. The evil that took hold during this morning, this Friday morning. First of all, you've got to see the envy. It says there that it was envy. Chief priests delivered them up because they were jealous. They were jealous. Matthew actually makes it a little more straightforward. It's, in Matthew's recording, it says he knew it was because of envy. Not merely he thought maybe it could be envy. No, he knew, this is envy. It was the jealousy of the chief priests. They did not like how Jesus was becoming so popular and so powerful. And all the crowds are beginning to follow him. And so the chief priest said, I don't like that. I'm jealous of what he has. We got to get rid of him. It was envy that began to do this. I wonder how much we think of envy as kind of a little sin. Like jealousy is not that big a deal. You know, there's many other sins that are far worse. And so when I feel envious, I like covet someone else's life. I feel a little bit jealous about what they have or who they are or what gifts they have. I, or what, what kind of platform they have. I get a little jealous. But that's not that big a deal. Because, you know, everyone feels jealous sometimes. And at least I'm not doing these other th- sins. But look at what jealous, jealousy leads to. Their jealousy, the chief priest's jealousy, leads them to try to murder an innocent man. Jealousy is like super fuel for hatred and murder. In fact, if you just do a brief study of envy in the Bible, you'll find that envy is often behind murder. Often. Why did Cain kill Abel? 
He was jealous. Why did Joseph's brothers try to ruin his life? They were jealous. Why did Saul try to take his spear and pin David against the wall? It's because he was jealous. Jealousy is often the breeding ground for hatred and murder. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. It was out of jealousy, it was out of envy that the chief priests began to try to deliver Jesus up to get him killed. Church, just as an observation here, implication we could say, beware of jealousy in your own heart. Consider the power of jealousy. In our church covenant, the kind of affirmations of commitment, one of the things we say to each other, we'll actually read them at the end of the service as we welcome George Fernandez into membership. One of the things we'll say is we are covenanting and committing to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Part of our commitment is as a church family, if you are rejoicing, I don't get jealous. I rejoice with you. We're all committing to do that. You know what, guys? The moment we stop doing that, and when others are getting something we want, we begin to get infected with the disease of jealousy. And jealousy spreads like cancer and will destroy us It'll destroy a church. It'll destroy a marriage. It'll destroy a family. It'll destroy friendships. Jealousy destroys. We see it on display in our text. Jealousy, we see the envy there in verse 10, leads to second thing I want you to notice. They're lying schemes. Verse 11 says, it says that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. It doesn't say exactly how they did this, but the chief priests are going up and down in the crowd spreading something to the people in the crowd, poisoning their minds against Jesus so that they will agree that the best thing to do is to get rid of Barabbas and to kill Jesus. The envy has now led them to a different sin. It's bred something new. It's bred lies and gossip and slander. But it doesn't even end there. Because look at verse 12. It says, Now, and Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 13, And they cried out again, Crucify him. What starts as envy morphs into these lying schemes which then turns into cruelty. Abject cruelty. It's not enough to dismiss Jesus. It's not enough to get rid of him and dismiss him. It's not even enough to scourge him. They're going to do that, but that's not enough. It's not even enough to kill him. They want to torture him. They want to put him on the cross where he will die a long, slow, agonizing, painful death. Do you see the startling wickedness of man here? This is incredible. The envy is morphing. It's growing. It's turning into this cruelty. I think that if we were to be there, And if we were able to put on some kind of supernatural glasses so we could see not only the physical realm, but the spiritual realm, I think we would have seen demons howling about and 
devils shrieking with delight as these crowds cry out the bloodthirsty cry, crucify him. Jesus said to the high priest a few hours earlier, it's recorded in the Gospel of John, this is your hour and the power of darkness. There's more than meets the eye going on here. Chief priests are instruments in the deceiver's hands. They are wicked because they themselves are wicked, but they're also wicked because they have given the devil a foothold. Remember, anger gives the devil a foothold, according to Ephesians 4. Envy does as well. And the swirling powers of darkness are working overtime this morning. The madness of the crowd has set in. The powers of hell are excited as they're all crying for the blood of the Son of God. The one who could stop it, Pilate, is a coward. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. The murderer, true insurrectionist, set free. And having scourged Jesus, this is where the scourging becomes more serious. The one that they did in the midnight gathering at Caiaphas' house was something like a precursor. These scourgings here prior to a crucifixion were often so serious and painful and agonizing they would actually die before they were put on the cross. They scourged Jesus and delivered Him to be crucified. Those words there in your text, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Oh, how easily did he justify his behavior? You know, if I let the crowd get out of control and they get angry that I let this guy go, it might cause a riot. Wouldn't want that to happen. I'll just kill this innocent man. Fascinating thing, as you read the other gospel accounts, Pilate knew he was innocent. He didn't want to. He made the decision because he was afraid of what might happen with the crowd if he made a different decision. What an indictment on this man's character. Willing to murder the innocent man in order to control the crowd. This is not just. This is unjust. His cowardice has opened the door wide for an unjust murder to take place in broad daylight. He is a coward. A fallen, is sinful man. I wonder if we think that if we were there, we would do anything different. Friends, let's be honest with ourselves that many of the sins we see on display here are present in our own hearts, aren't they? Envy, anger, willing to tell a lie to get some people to be on your side, cowardice, because you so desperately want the approval of those around you, even if it hurts someone else, the evil present in the hearts of men and women is startling. This is one of the most important claims of Christianity. That we 
don't need a turning over of the leaf, a few tweaks, a few added morals. We need a Savior. We need a substitute. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone to pay for our sin. And we need someone to stand as a substitute to represent us before the Father because we have no righteousness on our own. That brings us to our third point, the symbolic release of the guilty. We have these sins that require God's wrath. We lack righteousness that gets God's approval. And right here in this moment, I believe God providentially is demonstrating one of the most central Christian truths. It's being acted out by the hand of providence. And it is a pattern that you've seen all throughout Scripture if you've read it. And it's the pattern of the guilty being saved through substitution. Think about this through Scripture. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, guilty, an innocent animal dies to make clothing to cover their shame. Isaac is going to be sacrificed by his father Abraham according to what God required him to do. God provides a ram. The ram dies in his place. Isaac is set free. Israel is a sinful nation deserving of God's righteous wrath. God tells Israel on the day of atonement to kill a lamb their place and they are set free on the passover they were to slaughter a lamb even though guilty israel was deserving of the same judgments as the egyptians the lamb dies and they are set free the one who deserves death is delivered and set free and the perfect innocent one who does not deserve death suffers Here we have a picture of that. It says that Pilate released for them Barabbas, the true murderer, the guilty one, the one who is a rebel against God and against Rome. This one is set free. And Jesus, who had only ever obeyed, who had submitted to the Father, who even had submitted to the governing authorities here, is the one who will die. Substitution. Guilty sinners saved through substitution. It's woven everywhere in the Bible. And this is what what it means. It means that you and I cannot save ourselves by tweaking our lives. We cannot save ourselves by turning over a new leaf. We cannot even save ourselves by taking everything in this book and all the moral codes and all the Christian ethics and doing our best to try to obey every last one. That is not how sinners are saved. If you think that you're a Christian because you're a good moral person, the Bible disagrees. Because the Bible doesn't say you save yourself by becoming good enough. It says that you are so sinful and unable to save yourself that you need to despair of ever doing anything good enough to to appease a holy God, to look away from your self-righteousness and cast yourself upon the mercy of God and put your faith in the substitute that He has provided, the spotless Lamb, and to look to Christ. And when you look to Christ, here's what happened. You, like Barabbas, though guilty, though a cosmic rebel, 
though a hater of God, you are set free. And you don't pay for the sins you deserve. And Jesus, though righteous, though innocent, though perfectly obedient, takes your place on the cross so that the righteous wrath of the Father falls on Him. And there is no more wrath for you to face. And the perfect life of Christ is credited to you so that not only are your sins forgiven, but you are granted the very righteousness of Christ that can justify you before a holy God. Romans 5 teaches that every human being is either in Adam and under judgment or in Christ and under grace. Which are you? Are you still in Adam? Are you a guilty sinner who has tried to become more moral the way to make yourself right with God? Despair of that. Give up. Look to Christ. The substitute. The one who pays your sin. The one who has the righteousness you need. And who will share it with you freely. J. Gresham Machen was a theologian and a brilliant scholar. Lived in the 20s. Fought against the encroaching tide of liberalism in the church. In the last week of his life, as he was dying, he sent a final telegram to his colleague and good friend John Murray, another theologian. And he said, the very last thing he said to his friend as he was about to die was this. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Isn't that true? You and I will die. We will stand before a holy God. And your only hope is that you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for Your perfect obedience. If at any point You failed, we would all be lost. Thank You for in this text highlighting startling evil that's found in the hearts of men. Thank You for reminding us that there is hope. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ, our great High Priest, our perfect righteousness, who ever and always pleads for us, who is alive now, who is our advocate and our intercessor. All our hope is in You, Jesus. Amen.